Sometimes you got to compromise. When you think of compromise, what do you think of? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? It really depends on the situation, right? Like if two countries claim the same piece of land but are somehow able to come to an agreement or settlement without going to war, that would be a good compromise. If you and a friend or your spouse can't decide on what movie to go to, one wants to go to an action flick, maybe the other a horror movie, but you can agree on a rom-com, that's a good compromise. But if that bead of sweat hits the floor and Tom Cruise's mission is compromised, that's a bad compromise. Or if a car company cuts corners and sacrifices safety in the name of saving a few bucks, that's a bad compromise. So compromise is a tricky word. It's a tricky thing. And even the actual definition of the word compromise is tricky. As a noun, it's defined as, defined as an agreement or settlement of a dispute in which each side makes concessions. Well, agreements are a good thing, but concessions, maybe not so much. So it's this both and. And as a verb, we often use a number of different phrases for compromising. Meet each other halfway. Coming to terms or give and take. As a kid, and anyone who's not an only child can probably relate, I was taught to compromise. Well, I want to play with that toy. Well, your brother had it first, so he can play with it for 20 minutes, and then you can play with it. You have to learn to share. That's a form of compromise, right? Well, in this series, Compromised Christianity we are going to be diving deeper into compromise. How and in what ways maybe we compromise our faith? Now, you may be thinking, well, that's all the bad kind of compromise, right? If we're compromising our faith, that's all the bad kind. And I would say, yeah, you're right. But whether we realize it or not, oftentimes when we are compromising, when we are compromising our faith, we consciously or subconsciously rationalize it as a good compromise. Because oftentimes, we also probably don't even think about how we are compromising our faith. Oftentimes, we may think that we're doing something good, when in reality, our motivation for doing it is actually rooted in selfishness or pride rather than in our faith. So in this series, what we want to wrestle with is what areas of our life do we compromise or choose not to live through a lens of faith? And how then can we better learn to do so? This morning we are going to turn to an Old Testament story about the prophet Elijah. It's a face-off between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, the background of this story is that at the time, king, the king of Israel was King Ahab. And he and his queen, Queen Jezebel, have made worshiping Baal and Asherah a 
national form of worship for Israel. But in reality, during this time, Queen Jezebel was the one who was running the show. And she was ruthless. And she was fierce. And because Israel has constantly turned away from the Lord to other gods, Elijah tells King Ahab, there will be a great drought in the land. That there will be neither rain nor dew unless Elijah himself asks for it. And so Israel is in the midst of this great drought. And in the third year, God commands Elijah to go to King Ahab. And that if he did, then God would send rain to the land. So Elijah goes to the king. And after the two talk, Elijah asks Ahab to gather together the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And to meet on Mount Carmel. And this is where we pick up our story for this morning. Our scripture for, reader for this morning is Sid Perry. So Sid, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. And if you are able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe that this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So Sid, whenever you're ready, please go ahead and read 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 39. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes ascended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning your hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Thank you, Sid. You may all be seated. This is one of those climactic moments in Scripture. It's a showdown. It's a sort of a Super Bowl. It's Rocky versus Apollo Creed. It's Batman versus Joker. It's the showdown or the climax of Elijah's ministry. And the location of our showdown is Mount Carmel. Now at this time, Mount Carmel is located where three provinces come together. Phoenicia, Galilee, and Samaria. And to the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the east is the Jezreel Valley, or the Plain of Estrelon. And this is the most fertile land in all of Israel. Now, Baal was worshipped as a fertility and storm god by the Phoenicians. But in our story, Elijah is the only one that knows that God is going to send rain. At the beginning of chapter 18, God tells Elijah to present himself to King Ahab, and if he did, he would send rain. And so this sets our stage. And Elijah, trusting in God, gives the prophets of Baal every advantage. You see, Mount Carmel was a sacred place of Baals for the Phoenicians. And so all of those in Israel who would have turned to Baal uh, would have thought that surely if there was anywhere that Baal would answer them, that he would hear their cries for mercy and for rain, it would be atop Mount Carmel. And then Elijah gives them first choice of sacrifice, the first choice of bull. But what I want to draw your attention to in this story is the dialogue. Because the dialogue in this story is what moves the needle forward. It begins with Elijah saying to the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. 
Elijah challenges the people of Israel that you have to make a choice. You have to choose one or the other. You can't have a foot in both camps. Yet the story tells us the people say nothing. They don't respond. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, we have to make a choice. Everybody, without exception, even those who claim no faith at all, are serving somebody or something. And this idea of keeping one foot in both camps is something we often refer to as syncretism. It's the blending together of two things. In this case, it's the blending together of the gospel message with some other form of idolatrous worship. So if everybody worships something or someone, whether that is false gods, money, other philosophies, sex, work, politics, our own identities, it doesn't matter. When we try to blend the gospel with something else, when we elevate something in our hearts in the way that we are only supposed to elevate God, we are walking a dangerous line. And that's syncretism. Things like prosperity gospel, which blends together the idea of faithful living and material wealth. That if I live faithfully, I will receive much materially. That's not scriptural. Or universalism, which accepts the tenet of grace, but applies it to everyone without regard for their faith. In this false gospel, everyone of every belief is saved. That's not scriptural. Or individualism, that faith is solely an individual, personal thing between me and God. It's a private matter, and I get to choose what that looks like. That's not scriptural either. You see, we don't get to just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on our lives as a way to save them. It's not like how I add 7,000 shakes of salt to my peas in order to choke them down. We don't just get to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on our idols in order to make them acceptable to God. We have to make a choice. And Elijah is telling the Israelites, you have to choose. You don't get to sit on the fence. You don't get to play at both sides. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do both. And maybe you're thinking, well, I can certainly love God and love my things or stand on my own opinions of how the world should work. But Jesus and Elijah both warn us, you can't waver between two opinions. You cannot elevate two things in your heart. You can't sit on the fence and walk that line. But it's really interesting because if we're honest with ourselves, we like the line, don't we? 
We like to toe the line. Like we like to see how far or how close to the line we can get. And then we like to rationalize our behavior. And we can see this from the very beginning of Scripture. The story of Adam and Eve in the fall, right? Adam and Eve were enticed and they gave in to the temptations of the serpent to become independent from God. Essentially, the temptation was if you eat of this fruit, you can become your own God. We want to choose what we do or don't do. We like the idea of that full autonomy. But often our choices compromise other areas of our lives. So Elijah, he gives the prophets of Baal the first crack at it. They choose their bull and then they call on the name of Baal. And the text says, no one answered. No one's home. But the next part of the story is actually humorous. It's sarcastic, which I can appreciate. Elijah actually begins to mock the prophets of Baal. I can just see him sitting there, leaned back on Mount Carmel with his arms behind his head, chuckling at 450 prophets of Baal who are jumping around, dancing, and shouting. And he begins to mock them. He says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's sleeping or busy. Or maybe he's out of town. He mocks them. He humiliates them. And it says they become so desperate that they start cutting themselves, that the blood starts flowing. They start making blood offerings to Baal. And finally, Elijah has had enough. He's given them all day. And now it's time for the evening sacrifice. And he says, come here and see. Come to me and see. And Elijah meticulously and liturgically goes about preparing his bull on the altar. And he goes so far as to stack the odds against himself even more from Israel's point of view. Is that he soaks the altar in water. That there's this trench dug around that's now full of water. Which feels almost like more of an uh, insult to injury, right? Because they're in the middle of this three-year drought, and now he's just had them drench his altar in 12 large jars of water. But he wants to glorify God's power to Israel. Elijah knows what's coming, and he's making all the preparations for what's coming, for God to act. And then he prays, and his prayer is proper and pointed. Because in his prayer, he reminds Israel, he reminds the people gathered around him who their God really is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And it says, the fire of the Lord came down and it consumed everything, the bull, the wood, the soil, the stones, and every last drop of water. It's the knockout blow. It's the mic drop on Baal. It's God's statement that I alone am God. 
the odds were seemingly stacked against Elijah and against God. It's one against 450. It's an away game on Mount Carmel. It's second choice. It's water soaked. But none of that matters to God. None of that matters. But you see, every person serves somebody or something. And to make a choice is to take a step towards faith. Whether it's self-serving or whatever it serves, at its core, it is a step of faith. And the people do end up making a choice. In verse 24, Elijah lays out the parameters. And this time they do respond. And their acceptance of this contest expresses that they understand that they can no longer sit on the fence. That they can't have a foot in both camps. And this point in the story of choice recognizes that syncretism or any sort of duality that elevates some sort of idol to the same level as God is just simply not an option. That there is a line that cannot be crossed. No thing is to be put before our God. I want to give three quick key convictions. Now that we know the story, we know what happens, here's what I want you to take from it. First, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. Elijah makes that choice to pursue godliness. In this story, it is not ultimately Elijah who acts. It's not Elijah who brings the fire, but Elijah does make the choice to pursue godliness. We don't become more like God by simply doing the right thing or by doing good things. We become more like God or we become more godly when we come to know God more. Understanding that scripture is not given to us to restrict us. Just like a parent doesn't have rules to just simply subdue their children, but it is out of a place of protection and love. Scripture is given to us in order to instruct us on how to live faithful lives, not because God wants to subdue us, but because he loves us and wants the best for us. So we should not be asking, well, where's the line? How close to the line can I get without crossing it? But we do that all the time, right? We want to get as close to the line as we can. I'm not crossing it. And oftentimes in Scripture, we're not exactly given the line. And that's actually a good thing because we shouldn't be sitting here trying to dance with it. We shouldn't be sitting here thinking, well, I want to get as close to it as I can without crossing it. We know some things that are over the line. We know what's over the line, right? We should be turning the other way. We shouldn't be trying to get to it as close as we can, but we should be pursuing godliness. We should be striving to be way over here. The second conviction is to prepare the altar of your hearts. 
Prepare the altar of your hearts. Elijah doesn't bring about the conviction of faith. God is the one who ultimately does that. God is the one who brings the fire. Last week, we did the burning of prayers from our prayer wall, and Pastor Chuck talked about the fire that comes within us, that God moves through us in his spirit, in our hearts, that he is the one at work within us. We are simply to prepare the altar of our hearts daily. And I'm sorry, but coming to church on Sunday just isn't enough prep work. It's good prep work, but it's not enough to just come on Sunday and then give the rest of your week to whatever else you serve or to whatever else you desire. Elijah's prayer is not to let everyone else see that he's right. Or to say, look at me, look how powerful I am. But it's that God, let these people experience you working in their hearts. You turning them back towards yourself. That's what Elijah is preparing for. For God to move. For God to work. Finally, remember that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. We just celebrated the sacrament of baptism, recognizing what it means to be a child of God, the promises God makes to us. But what do you believe about yourself? Because what you believe about yourself is what you will prove to be true. If you think, well, I'm just a failure, then consciously or subconsciously, you will find ways to fail. If you believe yourself to be unlovable, well, then consciously or subconsciously, you will make those around you miserable in order to feel unlovable. If you believe that you are better than everyone else, you will push everyone else away through arrogance and disparagement. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, no, I don't feel like those things be because of myself. I don't feel like those things because of my own doing. Are you sure? What do you believe in your heart? Do you trust God above all else? Because one of the unique gifts of being human is our intellect. It's our ability to feel emotions. It's our ability to reason. And that's a double-edged sword because in our emotions, we are able to experience and give unconditional love and joy. And in our reason, we are able to understand, comprehend, and experience the world around us in God-given and creative ways. God has divinely given us a unique intellect that allows us to create joy, to experience unconditional love like no other living things. But in our self-centeredness, in our brokenness, we are able to manipulate emotion and to deceive reason. And so often throughout Elijah's ministry, Israel has compromised their convictions and has compromised their identity. 
instead of finding their identity as children of God, they sought to define themselves. Do you believe above all else, first and foremost, that you are a child of God? When the Israelites see the fire of God sweep down from the sky and consume the altar and everything else, they are reminded of whose they were. It says that they fell prostrate and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This contest is the climactic event of Elijah's ministry because it forced the Israelites to choose. They have been compromising their convictions. But when God acts in this story, they are reminded that he alone is God. And they are his children. And that conviction can never be compromised. Psalm 106 tells us that how we live matters. And it reminds us over and over again to whom we belong and what promises he has made and that his deliverance never fails. Therefore, we must pursue him and we must pursue his will. We must prepare the altar of our hearts for the work that he is about to do. And we must remember and be continuously convicted of to whom we belong and that our identity is a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we just give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the opportunity that we have had this morning to see what it means for us to be called a child of God. God, I just pray that you would be on the move in this place. That you would help us to make the choice to follow you wholly. That you would help us to pursue godliness. That you would help us to prepare our hearts through prayer. That you would help us to prepare our hearts in order that you would move within us. That you would show us the work you are about to do in and through us. And that wherever we go and in all that we're doing, that we would always remember we are your children. And that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have been brought back into that family. That, we, that our hearts have been turned back to you. And that you welcome us as little children with open arms. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, receive this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's children said, Amen. Amen.